Kids are dismissed for Children's Church right now to the back double doors. If you're here for the first time, they are going over to the tree house. That's the little building right next door. And they're having a time of worship together with very competent, very um, uh, Christ-adoring teachers. So they'll be in good hands. begin with prayer. <clears throat> Lord, we want to turn this time over to you and we want to ask first of all that you by grace will create in us a spirit of worship uh, rather than a spirit of consumerism. Uh, just guard us from being here looking what we can get but and guard us from that and, and create in us an attitude of being here looking how we can be equipped and shaped and honed and prepared for the sweet work of glorifying you. Lord, I want to pray for a family fellowship this morning and other body of believers in our community. We just beg for a Christ-centeredness in that body, Lord. I pray that right now as they are engaged in worship that it's truly that and it's a sweet aroma to you, a sweet aroma of Christ crucified. And It's because it's a room full possibly of people that are crucified with Christ and risen to walk in newness of life and that are bringing glory to you in the way that they live and love. Lord, I pray for the pastor. I pray that you will guard him from the wiles of the devil and the deception of the devil and the accusations of Satan. I pray that he will just be quickened and undone weekly and daily in the Word and that that will manifest itself in the pulpit on Sunday mornings where he brings a Word that changes people, not because of anything having to do with him, but just because he's been an available instrument. Lord, we pray that we can be a true partner with family fellowship in some way, even if it's untangible, even if it's just people in the cubicle next to us or down the street from us or our neighbors, that there'll be a spirit of agreement with a shared commission and a sweet, savored, shared Lord that we see ourselves as brothers and sisters and not in competition with each other. Lord, guard us from that. Guard family fellowship from that. Guard other churches in our community from that. We want to bring honor and glory to your name in the way that we live and love. Lord, regarding this message this morning, I want to ask that you will speak in spite of me and that you will just move me out of the way and that you will speak to your people and that you will quicken people and arrest people with the call, the high call of making disciples. Lord, I ask that this message this morning will not just be another routine Sunday. And I pray that by grace that there will never be such thing when we are opening this unbelievable book and we're engaging you. Lord, we turn this time over to you. We pray that it will be distraction-free. pray that we'll be captivated with Christ this morning. And we'll savor the word. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Turn to John chapter 11. <clears throat> We're beginning in verse 38. So Jesus, again being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave... And a stone was lying against it. 
And Jesus said, Remove the stone. And Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone, and Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings. and His face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. We're going to come back to this passage this morning. I wanted to read it at the front end. Turn to Matthew chapter 28. We will work our way back to John chapter 11 via a couple of other passages first. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 28. <clears throat> Beginning in verse 18. The last words from our Lord before He ascended to the right hand of the Father. Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. It's from that authority that he's about to share these next few words. It gives them a charge and a commission, not just to them, but to us. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. Now, as a subheading of making disciples, it follows on. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's part one. If you leave it with that, we've got problems. And then part two, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. That's really what this message is about this morning. It's about the Great Commission, the last words that the Lord shared with us before He ascended to the right hand of the Father. It's about John chapter 11, but we're working backwards to John chapter 11. We're working from the Great Commission. And John chapter 11 so wonderfully illustrates this passage, this Great Commission, that we're going to take this morning and we're going to consider some lessons from John chapter 11 on our highest charge. I want to beg you and urge you, if you've heard a million messages on discipleship, Obviously, that's an extreme. There's no possible way. But if you've heard a thousand, a hundred, there's the possibility before we even climb into this that you could dismiss it. And I'm urging you to put all of it aside and to approach this word fresh and new this morning. We're going to climb in to John chapter 11 and discover the riches of the illustration that points back to our high call, our highest charge, of making disciples of all nations. I want to say something before I continue also. As I've prepared this message, it's been months in the making. As I've prepared this message, I've realized that this, is, this will be, hopefully, a very practical message. I hope that you'll walk away saying, man, I saw this. This illustration you know, illuminated this. I really got a lot out of this. I feel better prepared. This is so practical. It is a very, what I believe will be a very practical message on the least practiced practice of the faith. It will be, hopefully, a very practical message that we can walk away from and say, man, that was nifty. Boy, I sure got a lot out of that. But never do it. 
It will hopefully be a practical message. But there's a second part of that where we go and do what we're about to hear. Otherwise, it's a waste of time. Practical message on the least practiced command to make disciples. Turn to the book of Acts. We're going to come back to John 11. We're going to work our way back there. And you'll see when we get there that this was part of the journey. Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. This is seven weeks after our Lord was crucified in Jerusalem, Passover. This is a different holiday. It's called Pentecost, and it's a big time of gathering in Jerusalem. And that's where they all are seven weeks after the Lord was crucified, only a few weeks after He's ascended to the right hand of the Father. Okay, get it in context. And it's in the same town in Jerusalem. The day of Pentecost had come. They were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves. And they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound, this Violent rushing wind occurred. The crowd came together. All right, I'm starting to get excited. We've got tongues of fire. We've got a rushing wind. And we got crowds coming together. All right, bring it. Let's hear it. Crowds came together and were be- bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why? Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that each hear them, that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongue speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? Then Peter, the chicken, only seven weeks earlier, the chicken transformed by walking and eating fish with the risen Lord, the one who went and ran and hid and denied Christ three times, now delivers the perfect sermon. The perfect sermon from the now powerful preacher, starting in verse 14, it goes all the way through to where I want to pick up in verse 37. I don't even want to visit the content of the message. It's rich. If you want to go there, discover what I would call the perfect sermon. Verse 37. Now, when they heard this, remember the crowds are on the receiving end of this message. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter, that, that, that's music. Just know that's music coming from this greenhorn preacher of three years. What shall we do with what you just said? That's music, man. The perfect preacher or the perfect sermon from the powerful preacher and the prepared people all ready to go do what they're hearing. 
They asked him, Brother, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, listen to this. Oh, man. Those who had received his word were baptized, And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Man, the perfect sermon from the powerful preacher and the prepared people, and God showed up. Man, when I've read Pentecost, I, I just love to imagine what it must have been like. It's not spontaneous combustion. I'm going to call it spiritaneous combustion, where the Holy Spirit just comes and consumes people. And his glory is all about the perfect message from the powerful preacher. And God showed up. I love to see in my imagination the throngs of people responding and surrendering to follow Christ. In the very town, the very city where he was crucified seven weeks earlier. Realize that. Okay, I'm going to follow this guy that was crucified here seven weeks earlier. Meaning that I may be crucified too. Yet thousands surrender all. And follow him. Man, I love to imagine it. And let me tell you something. I would love to reproduce it. I would. Man, I, I want to tell you though, three years ago, Christy and I moved to Greenville. I was called here as, as then the pastor. Now we have multiple pastors and elders, but then the pastor at Cross Point. We moved to Greenville and entered full time ministry. We had a rude awakening. We presented what I want to believe are the ingredients of Pentecost. We prayed. I worked on the perfect message. Maybe it wasn't the powerful preacher. But I worked toward what was the perfect, what I hoped to be the perfect message. And we prayed and we begged the Lord to equip us and prepare us to be the prepared people. Yet where were the tongues? Yet where are the 3,000 people? We've got 25,000 people in Greenville. About 3 to 5% of people are engaged in a local bride. So we got a lot of people to draw from. Lord, where's Pentecost? Bring it. We're putting in the ingredients. Where's the recipe? So we searched desperately for the silver bullet ministry or program or plan that would reach the community. We developed some great advertising and videos, even over at the movie theater, that were good. There's nothing wrong with that. We examined our method, our, our bulletins, what they look like. We examined how we're leading worship, what we're singing, the content. We examined, I examined how I'm preaching, how I deliver. Should I have a pulpit? Should I not? We examined all these things. We brainstormed where nothing was a bad idea. You ever been part of one of those kind of sessions where the leader says, hey, man, just throw it out there. There's nothing that's a bad idea. And then sure enough, somebody throws something out there where you look at him like, where'd you come from, man? That's stupid. But we had some of those brainstorming times. And we even came up with a great plan. We'd get a big Christian band on the softball field. We don't know any big Christian bands or anything. But we thought we might be able to... Warm up to one of them. We'd get a big Christian band out there on the field, on our big softball field, with big chairs, big stadiums, big screens, and a big, big, big message. And we would get our Pentecost on. And then over time, God led us to a different place from this book. 
Over time, through preaching through John and preaching through Matthew 13, we found that there's joy in the sowing, that a harvest involves sowing and it involves reaping. And we realize that, you mean we can be joyful just sowing? And we realize that that's part of the, part of the equation. Is sowing, and we started to discover joy, and we studied the sower, the seed, and the soil of Matthew 13, and we found that the sower fills his seed bag and walks out into the field with this seed and throws it in every corner of the field. He doesn't stand next to the barn on Sunday mornings and throw it as far as he can and hope that the field will come to him. He fills his seed bag up on Sunday mornings, and then he takes it to the field a sweet seed of the kingdom, and he throws it in every corner of the field, on the north side of Greenville, in the middle of Greenville, on the east side, south side, Lone Oak, you name it. He takes it to the field. And we also discovered a kingdom of God where the first is last and the big is little and the sensational is typically not of the kingdom. Things just changed. What we realized was that big, awesome things that we were pursuing what we realize is that big, awesome things, when they happen, are made up of a bunch of small, faithful things. See, before Pentecost happened, John the Baptist happened. John the Bee was preaching all over the area. He was preaching from the Judean wilderness. He's wearing camel skins and eating locusts and preaching a message of repentance, preparing a people to hear and see Christ. Before Pentecost ever happened. Before Pentecost happened, Jesus sat with a Samaritan woman offering her some living water from an ancient well. Before Pentecost happened, Jesus fed multitudes with a little boy's lunch. Five loaves and two fishes. Before Pentecost happened, he sent out the twelve to preach and heal. He sent out the 70 to preach and heal. And then he went to their hometowns and preached and healed before Pentecost ever happened. Before Pentecost happened, Jesus invested every hour of every day for three years walking and talking and investing in 12 losers before Pentecost ever happened. And these men, these 12, he called one at a time, by name. Before Pentecost, he saw Nathaniel under a tree. He talked to Nicodemus by night. He turned water into wine at a wedding. He healed a man among hundreds at the pool of Bethesda. A man, a nameless guy we don't even know. He healed a blind man, a blind man. And he opened his eyes to who he was, and the guy fell to his knees one at a time and worshipped Christ. Pentecost was the fruit of many years of developing story from faithful tellers, teachers, preachers, and worshipers being faithful in the small things. One message, one healing, five loaves, two fishes, one Samaritan woman, one person, one disciple at a time. The God that spoke. Now, we know from Hebrews chapter 1 that Christ is the agent of creation. This is the way I like to imagine it. The Father spoke and that the Word, Christ, went into action and created. The God that spoke and the galaxies happened. 
hundreds of billions of light years worth of space full of stars and novas and Milky Ways and things like that. The minute he spoke instantaneous, there they are. The God that said, let there be light, and there it was, a sun. The God that said, let me create some vegetation, and bam, there it is. Leaves with veins, and he knew every vein. The God that said, let there be creatures, and then there's animals of all sorts. How many lizards and birds? He knew them. And he created them instantaneously. The God that did all those things, the God who can do all things on a worldwide scale in an instant, came and walked for 30 years at 3 miles an hour. Think about that. The God, the master of the sensational, came as an ordinary walker at 3 miles an hour, leaving 11 disciples and a few hundred more who believed in him once he ascended. Here's the deal. In the pursuit of Pentecost, we've rejected his three-mile-an-hour method and sought the program or the expert or the silver bullet, and we're paying a price for it because we don't know how to walk with someone. We don't know how to do it. It's scary. It's frightening. It's cumbersome. It's hard. It's inefficient. Let's just preach to them all at once. Bam! Pentecost not realizing a lot of stuff happened in front of Pentecost. His three-mile-an-hour method should condition ours. He's called us to be faithful and obedient in teaching, preaching, sharing, and discipling one person at a time. Here's where we come back to John 11. One Lazarus at a time. I told you we were going to come back to John 11. And what we're doing is we're letting the imagery of the raising event where where Lazarus is called from death to life, if we'll let that be the imagery that it is pointing to our salvation of Lazarus being dead, four days dead, in a sealed tomb, nothing he can do about it. Yet the effectual call of a Savior calls even beyond death and calls him from death to life. If we'll let that be the imagery that it is about salvation, then we can climb into some deeper imagery. He could have raised the entire graveyard with just a spoken word. Yet he didn't. We would have loved that. We could have counted heads. Look how many decisions we had today. We would have loved it if he would have just vacated that graveyard. But he didn't. He called Lazarus by name. With occupied tombs all over the world, he called Lazarus by name. And I bet he called you by name. You may not have heard it audibly, but I hope that if you're in fellowship with Christ, you remember that day, you can share the testimony. Those who are members here, I've heard your testimonies. He called you by name, maybe as a person, as an individual, but maybe as a family, as a couple. He calls by name. How inefficient. I'll tell you something else that's inefficient. Lazarus was bound in grave cloths. And he was unbound by onlookers. That I want us to be those onlookers. He was unbound one strip of grave cloth at a time. The one who hung the stars, the one with an instant spoke creation into existence, the one who hung the stars and scooped the oceans could have changed his clothes as he quickened into life. He could have made him smell good. But he came out in grave cloths, stinky and smelly. He could have called him out with new tevas. In a three-piece suit. But he came out wearing grave cloths 
He came from death to life wearing stinky, smelly cloth, and he needed help to remove them. That's the imagery of discipleship. That's a picture of discipleship. It's not efficient, and it's not as tidy as vacated, empty graveyards, new tevas, and nice three-piece suits. The kingdom work of Lazarus raising, which Christ does, and the kingdom work of Lazarus unbinding that we participate in through whatever glorious privilege that he's given us of participating in that. Those works of making disciples are just plain inefficient in the eyes of the world. But it's in keeping with a three-mile-an-hour God. That's the first point on discipleship. The second point on discipleship this morning is that discipleship stinks. First, discipleship is inefficient. Secondly, discipleship stinks. Any of you who've ever worn a cast or had a family member, because even if you're a family member, you know what this is like. You don't have to be the one that wore it. When you take that thing off, or when you just happen to stick your nose down there, you go, whoa! That's decomposition on the surface level from the living. Imagine four, four days' worth of decomposition from the dead, from the core. Imagine the stench. What a vile, dirty job of unbind him and let him go. Oh, Jesus, but he stank. I don't think I want to get up next to that. If we'll let that be an imagery of, image of discipleship, you'll realize that discipleship stinks because you've got to get up next to the stinky and smelly. Unbinding the newly living gets dirty and smelly too. You've got to get up next to people and you've got to smell their stench. Jesus had some pretty smelly encounters with his followers. Turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. We'll look at a couple of those smelly encounters with those being unbound. If we'll let that imagery escort us to some different places, we'll take a look at what it looks like to unbind the newly living that are still wearing their grave cloths. Matthew chapter, excuse me, Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 35. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. He said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant that we may sit, one on your right and one on your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism which I'm baptized? What must he have thought? God, you guys are so small and what you're asking me for is so centered on you. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those to whom it's been prepared. But he begins teaching them. He's unbinding them. They stink, but he's unbinding them. Hearing this, the ten, here's more stench. The ten began to feel indignant with James and John, calling them to himself. Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, 
but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's a great picture of the newly living, the newly um, vacated their tomb, uh, the, those who just out of their tomb who still stink, wearing grave cloths, where Christ is unbinding them. Let me get this off of you, you smelly one. Turn to Matthew chapter 17. It's worthwhile pointing out that discipleship stinks and that it's smelly because we hear it from our own Lord. And if we know it in advance, we know that it's hard work, we know that it's smelly, then we'll be better equipped to see it through. And here's some words from our Lord, Matthew chapter 7, verse 14. When they came to the crowd, a man came up to Jesus, falling on his knees before him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he's a lunatic and is very ill. For he often falls into the fire and into the water. I brought him to your disciples, and they could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, How long shall I smell you? That's my words. He didn't say that. But I wonder if he thought that. How long will I smell you while I'm unbinding you? Here's what he said to him. You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. Disciples must be committed to walk with the bound, newly living. That's what we can call them. The currently bound, newly living. And they may have been living and walk around in grave cloths for a long time. That may be you. Kind of like, I've never been discipled. I still stink. I'm still bound. I'm not very mobile in my faith. I can't, certainly can't disciple another. I need to be discipled. You may see yourself in Lazarus being bound. But the discipler must be committed to walk with the bound, newly living, and guide them and encourage them and even rebuke them through the stench. And there's a flip side of that. Those currently bound, smelly, need to submit to it. I cannot tell you how many times I see somebody come to Christ or what we believe to be coming to Christ. And weeks or months later, they're neck deep in the world again because they would not submit to discipleship. They would not submit to being unbound. I got this. I got my prayer on. I got my baptism on. Me and God, we're square. I'm back into the world because they would not submit to a process of being unbound so then they could go freely. But it's a stinky job. First, discipleship is inefficient. Second, discipleship stinks. And third, discipleship is not about you. I want to point you back to John chapter 11 to the reality that the unbinders in that chapter weren't mentioned by name. They didn't have a cheer in section. Jesus, or at least we don't know this, I wouldn't imagine this, he went over there and patted him on the back. Man, great job unbinding old Lazarus. Boy, you did a good job there, man. Excellent work. It was simply their responsibility. And when he said, he told them to unbind him and let him go, they did what they were commissioned to do. Notice the word I use, commission. And they unbound Lazarus. Christ's work that day was not about the unbinders. His work that day was about calling Lazarus from death to life and about displaying his glory. It was not about you. Here's where I'm going with that. Here's where I'm going with the comment that discipleship is not about you. We're making progress on Sunday mornings when what's been taking place here, what we're doing here, 
no longer becomes just about you. Or becomes no longer just about you. We're making progress when you begin to see that what you're being fed is something to be fed to another. We're making progress when you recognize that you're being equipped right here. Not entertained. You're not being stroked. You're not being patted on the back. Great job, unbinders. You're being equipped to go unbind. That's what church is about. That's what I've been given to the church for, to equip the saints for the work of service. That's why we're here. We're making progress when we recognize what this is. And if you sit here and we're talking about discipleship, and if you think, man, I don't know what to say to someone. You know, I, I recognize you may have a point there. Discipleship may be important. Yeah, it's in the Great Commission. Okay, I'll see it as important. I, I'm a believer, and I recognize I ought to do that. But if you're sitting here saying, well, I wouldn't really know what to say to someone. It means that you slept through the equipping. Or you didn't recognize that this is connected to that. Or maybe it was just a terminal event. Maybe this preaching event and this singing event is just a terminal event because it lands on you and goes no further than lunchtime. Maybe not the doors of the building. This is an equipping event that leaves the building with a bunch of equipped sowers ready to sow in the far corners of the field and every inch in between. It's not just about you. When what you're eating here is not about you anymore, then we're talking about being a salty, bright, aromatic people. Then we're talking about invading and engaging a community. But never until that happens. We could say, well, come to our church building. Where are they? That's what we realized about Pentecost and our pursuit of Pentecost is that we've got to take Pentecost to them. Between Sundays, we take the seed to them as we're equipped on Sunday morning. I want to give you an illustration, an image from the Word. I've used this image before, but it's such a good image. I just enjoy it so much. Christ feeds the multitudes. He's got five loaves and two fishes from a little boy. His lunch. They bring it to Jesus, the disciples. This is all we got. And Jesus says, give it to me. And he starts to break it into little crumbs. And he hands those crumbs to the disciples. And the disciples turn around and, well, actually, they probably looked at him like, what do you want me to do this? And he said, turn around, pass it out. So they take between 12 of them. How far are five loaves and two fishes? These weren't like big loaves. They're like little bitty pieces of bread. They're crumbs. And he says, pass them out. And they turn around and they pass out those crumbs. And then they turn around and, what now, Jesus? And he's got chunks now. He had crumbs before, but now he's got chunks. And he says, pass those out. So they turn around and pass out the, the chunks. And then they turn around, he's got whole loaves and whole fishes. And then they do it again, and they turn around, and he's got baskets full of leftovers. Here's what the image is like. Here's where most of us are. Here's where I've been most of my life. Jesus hands me the crumbs, and I sit down, and I say, well, thank, for, thank you for the loaves and the fishes, Jesus. You're a good cook. And I sit there and eat them. While the multitudes are going, what about us? If I would but turn around and give it away to someone else. You don't think you have anything to give? You've got crumbs. You watch what he does when you give the crumbs to someone else. He's filling your hands with crumbs so that you may feed another and so that he may be glorified in that work. 
Discipleship is inefficient, it's stinky, and it's not about you. And discipleship is not optional. If you think about the context of John chapter 11, if Jesus had told the crowds, hey, unbind Lazarus and let him go, and they said, I, well, I'm kind of busy, Jesus. I don't really have time for that. You don't get the sense that there was any optional tone to it. it was unbind him and let him go. And that's the tone of the Great Commission. We are charged with unbinding the newly living without excuse. I'm going to address some lame excuses here in a minute. We are charged with unbinding the newly living. Discipleship matters enough to be the last thing that he said to us before he left to go sit at the Father's right hand. He told us to make disciples, not converts. If you wrestle, here's a promise to you. I want you to hear this. Here's where things get really, really practical for you. Because I see this so much. If you wrestle with hopelessness, emptiness, and meaninglessness, yet you call yourself a, a child of God, but you're not doing what's important to Him, duh. It's no surprise that you're hopeless, empty, and you feel like you're lacking meaning because you're not doing the thing that's important to Him. If you want to live a life of depression, live a life of hopelessness and emptiness, don't do the Great Commission. Don't disciple another. Don't even try because you're too feeble. You listen to the lies of the devil. Don't do it, and you will feel empty and hopeless and meaningless. But if you begin to disciple, as feeble as you may feel, and that's key because you will feel feeble. If you begin to disciple as feeble as you may feel, you will find riches of purpose, riches of meaning, riches of identity in doing what's important to Him. Now, a few lame excuses. Here they are. Here's the first one. Here's a few lame excuses why you can't disciple another. I'm too busy. That's one that comes to mind. It's probably the how that if we were to do a family feud, that would come out on the very top. I may be dating myself there, but I think that's still on. Ding, ding, ding. I'm too busy. Lord, I'm too busy to do what's important to you because I'm so busy at my job. I mean, I know it's not going to matter in eternity, but I got to eat. Lord, I'm so busy in getting a bigger house, getting a bigger car, getting these things that I want so bad, I just don't have time to do what is important to you. I'm just too busy. If you let a 65-mile-an-hour life with a 100-mile-an-hour job and a 90-mile-an-hour pursuit of stuff and things and a 40-mile-an-hour pursuit of television and the next show that's on TV rob him and rob you of participating in a three-mile-an-hour work, then that's just a lie of the devil. If you let, if you believe that you're too busy to do this, to walk with someone, to engage someone, if you listen to that lie, you are listening to a lie from Satan. It's pure disobedience. Call it busyness. Call it whatever you want to call it, but don't dismiss it. It's a lie from Satan. We've got time to do the things that matter to God. Remember I told you that this would be a practical message on the least practice, practice 
of the faith. Quality kingdom encounters are embedded within quality kingdom time. So you have to spend time doing the things that matter to God. Here's the second lame excuse. I'm not equipped. Remember, I used the example just now of the loaves and fishes. Take the crumbs you've been given and give them to another. Give them what you've been given this week. You feel like you don't have a handy-dandy guide or book to work through? What am I supposed to work through with them? How about what you heard last week and the week before that from Brad Cardwell about suffering? You know anybody that's suffering? You know anybody that's dealing with discomfort? Are you equipped after the last two weeks to go take message of comfort from the God of comfort to, to the uncomfortable? If you were paying attention the last couple of weeks and you realized that it was not a terminal event, but you were being equipped for something, then you got the goods to take it to them. You are indeed equipped. If you built a new house or you bought a new car, what do you do with that? You get a new car, you're going to be driving off to your friend's house. Man, check out my new ride. Take it for a spin. It's awesome. Come see my new house that we just built. Let's walk around it and marvel at all the cool setup. That's all discipleship is. You're taking people to the new revelation, to the new picture that God has given you. Man, let me tell you about how bad I stinketh. Man, let me tell you about what God does with discomfort, how he can be glorified through that. That's all discipleship is. So don't say you're not equipped. You're only not equipped if you didn't pay attention on Sunday morning or if it was a terminal message that ended with you. You're equipped every week, so don't that, that excuse just doesn't cut it. Here's my favorite, although it's not the most frequent I hear, but here's my favorite excuse, the third and last one. I'm not an expert or pro. Um, I realize as I'm standing here preaching this message, part of what makes it easy to dismiss a message like that is to think, well, Ben, that's what we pay you to do, dude. You got all that time on your hands. You go disciple Greenville. When the reality is what I've been paid to do and called to do is to unpack this book so that we can go do it together. Or you might be thinking, you're the expert. You got your seminary on. You went to seminary. I didn't go to seminary. How can I disciple anybody? What I was trained to do at seminary was to unpack this book so that we could go be obedient together. You don't have to go to seminary to disciple. We are conditioned, though, by an expert mentality, an expert idea. If somebody's sick and they got some sort of ailment, allergy problems, let's go to the ear, nose, and throat guy. Cancer problems, let's go to the oncologist. We can think all kind of problems, take them all kind of places to the expert. We are conditioned to an expert mentality. Bring it to the expert so it will be done right. Parents bring their little disciples to the pastor. And friends bring their other friends that are just aching to be discipled to the pastor. And codependent pastors love it. Chaplains love it. I'm not knocking a chaplain. My granddaddy was a chaplain. But don't bring me someone that you should be discipling. My charge is to unpack this book. And then to take a few of my own disciples while we all go do it together. You don't pay me to do what we're all supposed to be doing together. We've all been charged with discipleship. I appreciate the thoughts of 
expertise, but remember that Christ chose fishermen and tax collectors to glorify Him. He chose common men for an uncommon message. So be okay with being common and teach and talk and share and communicate, love and lead with your crumbs in your feebleness and watch God be glorified. If you only knew how feeble I am. Don, made a, Don Rodden, there are neighbors across the street, she made a comment about that yesterday. She knows me. I'm as common as anybody. I don't have any goods that you don't have. You've got the goods to disciple. I want to make just a short note, comment to parents. Parents, disciple your children. That's your primary discipling responsibility. Parents. Crosspoint isn't here to train your children in righteousness. Crosspoint is here to train you to train your children in righteousness. And we'll partner with you. But it's your charge. It's your responsibility. I want to offer to you something really practical that you can do with your children. This is something I'm doing with our kids right now. We're reading through Pilgrim's Progress. It's a modern English version. It's much more readable than the old English. And it's delivering. It is saturated, full of Scripture. It's in modern English, but the real language in there is Biblish. John Bunyan has eaten Scripture. And it, you just hear it spewing out. You can't help but have something to talk about. And that's what we do. We read, we read a chapter and just talk about it. Because that's my primary re- discipling responsibility, even over you. My primary is to my wife. My second is to my kids. I just offer to you to maybe consider working through a book like that, work through a C.S. Lewis book maybe, turn off the TV. The TV is not a very good discipler. It's really not. And if you think, man, my kids wouldn't engage something like this. It's too complicated. They, they want to watch TV and they want to play their video games. I want to just remind parents, I hope this is true. I expect this is true in your home, that you pay the bills. You pay the electricity bill. You probably pay the cable bill. Turn it off and spend time... Sometime, I'm not saying TV, you're from the devil if you turn on the TV. But if you turn on the TV and let that TV disciple your children over the Word and over a biblish book, you are, you are failing miserably at your primary discipling responsibility. I'll share with you a closing image of discipleship. Went to Yellowstone this summer with my family. And um, we have three kids. A lot of y'all know our kids that uh, have a, our middle one and our oldest one have vision problems. They're both visually impaired and both legally blind, but they see some. Uh, Evan sees a lot better than Luke, but Luke's vision, Luke's vision is really, really, really bad. And um, we went to Yellowstone. Something that's so important to me and Christy is being outside and hiking and backpacking and you know camping and things like that. So when we went to Yellowstone, we were determined to do some of the things, some of the things with our kids, and we've done them before. And when we first got there, we went on a short hike. It wasn't a real dangerous hike, but it's very different from hikes around here. You know, you can imagine you've got terrain, you've got elevation, you've got mountains and things like that. So we went to Yellowstone and we were hiking, and and here's something that my son said to me on this first hike. Luke, remember the one that doesn't see very well at all, really, really bad. He said to me, Christy was walking with Evan. She had Daniel on her back in a backpack. It was just perfect. It's the way it ought to be. <laughs> now, we took turns. But here's what Luke said to me. He said, Daddy, 
would you tell me if I get off the path? That's discipleship right there. And that's hopefully someone who's recognizing I need to be discipled. Okay, so Daddy, would you tell me if I get off the path? We're going to come back to that. So we went on this first hike, and it wasn't a real, like I said, it wasn't a real strenuous, terrible, terrible, dangerous hike. We weren't like, you know, wearing helmets and crampons and ice axes and stuff like that. It was really just kind of a simple hike. But we did go up some elevation. And the way you go up elevation in Yellowstone and in really any mountainous area is you go up switchbacks. And a switchback, if you go up a switchback, if you're familiar with that, they're just ways that cut up a mountainside. And up one side, you're going to have basically the mountain that you can reach out and touch. And then down below, you just got sheer drop-off. Not sheer, but pretty good drop-off. Okay, and we're going up this first hike. And uh, sure enough, you know, Luke has already told me right up front, Daddy, would you tell me if I get off the path? I said, okay, Luke. So I walked right with Luke. And three or four times over the course of that hike, we had scares that were so bad that we thought we were going to lose him. He's right in front of me. And I mean, he will walk right off of a path. And he's right in front of me. And there were times where we were going up these switchbacks where there's a pretty good drop-off where I'm holding him by his shoulders, ready to carry him if he starts falling. So what we decided to do, we finished that hike. Luke didn't die. (laughs) Great. And then we went to Jackson Hole, Wyoming, kind of midway through our journey. And we stopped at a mountaineering store. And we said, okay, we're going to put together a system a system to keep us safe. And it's called a belay system, basically. It's carabiners with nylon webbing and nylon rope between us. This is Luke's rope, and he hiked in front of me, and I grabbed this, this rope while he hiked, and it was a great setup. Now, Luke had some good questions. I told Luke, I said, Luke, now, if you fall, I'm big enough to where I will keep you from falling down the mountain. He's like, okay, that's good. And then Luke asked a really good question. He said, Daddy, what happens if you fall? <laughs> I said, well... I said, that's a good question, Luke. Looks like you're joining me. (laughs) But we tried it out on a later hike in Yellowstone. We climbed a mountain called Bunsen Peak, and it was about three miles up, and it was pretty challenging. We had some pretty good drop-offs, and we tried this system, and it worked. It worked so well. And Luke and I had a dialogue going the whole time, and I was remembering his request, because it was a constant request anytime we hiked. Daddy, would you tell me if I get off the path? And as we hiked, I had a constant narration with him. Luke, there's a root in the middle. There's a stone to the right. There's a ledge to the left. And it was hard work. And it was every step. But we were belayed into each other. We were tied into each other. I was committed and commissioned to bring him home safely. I was committed and commissioned to help him get down the trail. Not only the trail of Yellowstone, but I've been commissioned as his daddy and fellow believer to get him down the trail of the journey of faith. And this imagery is enough for me. That's a picture of discipleship. I'm going to ask you to consider, who do you have on belay? Who are you strapped into? Who, if they go down, you'll keep them from falling? Who are you narrating their journey? There's a rock to the right. There's a root in the middle. There's a ledge to the left. Who are you walking with? This is not a terminal message. It's to equip you to be better able to do that. My prayer as pastor, one of the pastors at Crosspoint, has changed from begging for Pentecost and begging for revival 
to begging for revival. I'm not praying for revival anymore. I'm not praying for Pentecost. I'm praying for revival, being God's people, being obedient at three miles an hour, walking with another, another couple, another family, a young person, their children. How about that? Of being disciplers and walking with them, unbinding them, one person or one couple or one family at a time. The time is now. Don't put it off. That's a lie from Satan too. I'll do that later once I get this under control. Once I get this promotion. Once I have more time, I'll be able to do that. Do it now. You will never have time to do it. You make time to do the things that are important to God. Start doing what he told us to do and watch what God does with crumbs. Be faithful and at the proper time we'll reap a harvest. We pray. Lord, I want to ask that um, by your grace that what we've talked about today, what uh, message you've exposed to your people, that by grace that it will be something that just undoes us, something that grips us not with a, um, some cool thoughts this afternoon, but some real true application this week, starting Monday where people are making phone calls or people are dropping emails or people are having someone over for dinner and beginning to engage someone with a message that's no longer terminal. Lord, we want to be found faithful and obedient when Christ returns. We want to be busy about doing the thing that we were charged with doing. We want to be so captivated with Christ that we can't help but show off our new car our new house, the glories of our new Lord and revelation. Lord, show us how to do that. Take us to that place by your grace and for your glory. Create in us a people that are truly doing the work of daily discipling. We love you so much, Lord. We pray and practice feebly, recognizing that you do mighty things with crumbs. Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Let's worship.